Genesis 1. Tonight, um, we're going to be looking at Genesis 1, 26, all the way through 2, 17. 1, 26 through 2, 17. And we're asking the question, what is humanity? What is humanity? What does it mean to be human? So let's read our text and pray. Genesis 1, 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished the work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Verse 4, these are the generations. It could also be translated what happened to or the story of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So here's that story. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life is in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah. Do you remember it? (laughs) Where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. I, I didn't know there could be bad gold, but that must have been really fine gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, and it is the river that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. 
the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Father, we come to these scriptures recognizing that you speak, you speak through them. This is your word. And also recognizing what your word did in the first chapter of creating everything. And so Lord, we can do nothing but yield ourselves to your word and to what you speak to us. So Lord, open our ears and soften our hearts to hear and obey. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So last week we opened with Genesis 1. And we looked at the narrative there in which it describes God as a conquering king. And he's taking this chaotic mess in verse 2 of Genesis 1. And there he forms what was formless and he gives shape to it. Then he fills what was empty and he gives life to it. And so he conquers what was not good. He gives life to what had no life. This was in contrast to the stories that were going around in pagan cultures. Most notably, we talked about the Marduk story, the Babylonian story, in which Marduk becomes a god who rises up against all the monster gods, kills them all, kills his parents, uses their corpses to make the heavens and the earth, and then eventually mingles the blood of one of the enemy captains into the mud and makes humans, and then he builds a temple for himself, and there he rests with the monsters all pinned up on his mantelpiece like Gaston, boasting about his manliness, and all the gods are happy because the humans are created to serve the gods. So the gods didn't have to do anything now. And there they were resting in their glory, Marduk as king, and now the earth has control. That was, was very strange. <laughs> if you want to know more about that, get the CD from last week. That was the very strange story of how Marduk became king. The Bible says we know about those stories, so Israel, listen, this is how our God does things. And then we see that God is not killing people to create there's no actual warfare, and he's not having sex with other deities to make other baby deities. God is sublimely and masterful control as a true king with absolute authority would be, just simply speaking, and all of the kingdom immediately responds to the king's voice. And we don't see resistance. Let there be light. And it doesn't say, oh, the darkness kind of balked and said, mm, we don't want light to be here and kind of fought against God. Nope, the darkness just said, all right, let there be light. And then the light came and shared with the darkness. And every time God spoke, it said it was so. And the Genesis 1 chapter records 10 times in which we see, and God said. So there's 10 words, if you will, which is what the Jews call the 10 commandments, were the 10 words. These are the first 10 commandments and creation has always obeyed. We only needed the second set of Ten Commandments because we were the aspect of creation that disobeyed. But that's coming in a future time, and I'm sorry if I spoiled the story. So, the question we come to now is we're redoubling back on part of chapter one, and then into chapter two a little bit, is what does it mean to be human? Who am I? Like, what does it mean that I'm a human? And why am I here? Why are we on this earth? Why are we the most intellectual species that has the ability to reason and to create? Why are we like that? Are we the result of many, 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 many years of biological formations and, and uh, 
natural selection and evolution? Or are we designed to be this way for a reason? What does it mean to be the way that we are? Why does it appear that we are the most intelligent on the earth? Is that cocky to say so, as some scientists say? Oh, those Christians always put the humans at the center of the world after God. They obviously missed that. Or are we cocky? Or are we supposed to be at the center of this creation? And if we are supposed to be, what does that mean right now? Like, what does that mean about my career, my family, my future, my decisions, my hobbies, my interests, my likes? What does that mean for me as a person? These are good questions that we all must ask at some time. And whether you've literally asked the question in these words to yourself or whether you've actually answered these questions for yourself, we all have formulated, knowingly or not, the answer to this question on our own. Some of us, just by being in scripture, have already absorbed the the Christian scriptural answer. Others of us, maybe without thinking, just listen to what science says, and we've accepted that as the answer. But somewhere we've all answered what it means to be you, to be a human, already, because you're living it out. But we're going to tonight pause and say, what does the Bible really say about humanity? What does it mean to be the human race? So, Here are some of the old philosophies we've heard. The purpose of man is to pursue pleasure. Hedonism is sometimes what we call this. Pleasure. I exist, and what it means to be human is to seek everything that feels good possible. That's what it means to be alive, to feel good. If things don't feel good, they must be gotten rid of, and we must pursue. This is how you know what's right and wrong. Make your decisions. Do what feels good. Or there's power that humans exist basically to see who's the most powerful and who will dominate the least powerful and to let these powerful organize the world in their way. And it's all a game to see who can be the most powerful. That is a true human, the one who can rule others. And of course, that answers much of history's warfare and the battles between nations because these kings see power as their main existence. Um, We also see that a lot of people, and this is big today, the point of being human is to improve either yourself or to improve the world around us. But the goal is that we are the vessels of improvement. So lining all the bestseller shelves are self-improvement books of one sort or another. A lot of how to master your mind because neuroscience is showing us this and how to change your habits to get better at that. There's a lot of self-improvement. And then they hope that by improving yourself, you'll be improving the world around you. Um, is that what it means to be human? To be improvement machines? Or what about God? There's always that been that, that idea forever and ever that to be human means to be in relationship with God. And whatever that God is, it might look differently. But we're to please the deities that be. Or nothing. Doesn't mean anything to be human. And to be alive, it means nothing. There's nothing to this existence. It's going nowhere. And so nothing really matters. You can choose what you want. You can orchestrate your own rules because nothing really matters. There are no consequences. Well, let's turn our attention to what's going on here in Genesis, shall we? In verse 24 of Genesis 1, we come to the sixth day of creation. Verse 24 is the start of the sixth day. And there we see God creating creatures that move upon the earth. 
like cows and deer and lions and zebras. And then there's man who's created in verse 26. Now, this is the climax of all of creation. We've been reading day one about God creating light. Day two about God creating space, dividing the waters. Day three, he brings land out of the waters and he starts to fill the land with lush vegetation. Day four, in that night and dark, uh, night and day, dark and light sky, he starts to put luminaries, sun, moon, and stars. And then in day five, in the air that he created between the waters, he puts in the waters fish and in the air birds. And day six, the land that he made on day three, he now fills with beasts of all kinds and then humans. And this sixth day is the climax. The entire creation progression has been getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until we get to the sixth day and it is the hugest thing yet. We know that this sixth day is the the climax of the entire creation narrative for five reasons. Very clear when you look at them. That this is the point of creation. It's the humans that God creates. We're not just there like the pagans say, oh, so that they can serve. It's sort of an afterthought. All right, we conquered everything, Marduk. Let's kick back. Now what? Let's make somebody serve us so they make humans. This is not how Genesis goes. It is more like God's creating a kingdom so that the humans can inhabit it and rule with God. This is the climax. It's the point of creation. Five reasons. Number one, the narrative slows way down in day six. I want you guys to put your finger on verse 24 where day six starts. Verse 24, put your finger there. I want you to look at the text above your finger and the text below your finger. And now depending on your translation and so forth, it's going to be roughly 50-50 above and below your finger. Half of Genesis 1 is the sixth day. That means the prior half is days one through five rushed through. And then it slows down in day six. Now, in ancient writing, where space is precious, especially when you're writing on tablets that are bulky to hold, and it's very expensive, and you can't just write freely like we do today, you know how students can write papers that there's a lot of gobbledygook to sound smart? (laughs) You wouldn't do that back in this day. Words were precious. So when it slows down, the author's saying, this is so important. It's like putting it in all caps and bold and italics and underlined and highlighting and circling and asterisking and whatever. Everything you can think of, that's what the author's doing. So it slows way down for emphasis. Second reason we know this is the climax is in verse 26, God has a council. He calls heaven into a council before creating the humans. God was doing his own thing for the first five days and the animals. But when it comes to the humans, God says, hold up. I want to talk to you guys about what I'm about to do next. I want everyone in on my plan to make these humans. Everyone's going to be part of this. Third, in verse 27, you see poetry breaks out. And you know this because of the way the Hebrew is done. It's very poetic in rhyme, or not in rhyme, but in meter. In rhythm, uh, the ESV is nice to even break it for you in poetic lines. And you see it. You can kind of hear the ring. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he 
created him. Repetition is how the Hebrews did poetry. And you can hear the repetition in those three lines. This is poetry. The first poetry in the Bible. God is just, he is getting full on artistic and creative with this moment. The humans, in other words, are the highest art form that he's given. And poetry breaks out to enunciate that. Fourth, relationship. God speaks for the first time directly to his creation. Now, regarding the birds and the fish, he did say, I want them to multiply, but he doesn't talk to them. He just sort of says out loud, multiply, fill the earth. But in verse 28, we see that God looks at the humans. It doesn't say that, but it says he said to them, a direct face-to-face conversation, you multiply, fill the earth, uh, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the different parts of creation. This is what I want from you. There's a relationship. There's a speech between God and the creation here, the humans. And then finally, we're told that nothing else in creation but this, the humans, are made in the image of God. The image. So recap. The narrative slows down. God calls a council about this creative step. He then breaks out in poetry about what he's done. Fourth, he speaks directly to the humans. Nobody else was directly spoken to. And fifth, to the exclusion of all else, humans alone are made in his image. Have you ever wondered, though, what that means to be made in the image of God? And you know how many times we throw that out? Humans are awesome because we're made in the image of God. And we all like, it's like a Bible buzzword, right? It's like, yeah, we know that's important. What on earth does it mean? (laughs) Have you ever asked that? So there's always been like the talk. Like I remember in Sunday school, it might've been youth group, whatever, I was young, that when we talk about the image of God, it's like, well, it must mean that God has a face and that God has legs and two arms, that he's a biped, that has hair and skin. But... I'm not really convinced that that's all it means to be made in the image of God. It's like, how anticlimactic. It's like, oh, God is as ugly as us. Okay. <laughs> that's, sort of, that's sort of lame. <laughs> um, so I begin reading this more as I become a Bible student myself. And I begin to realize that it's telling us very clearly what it means to be made in the image of God if we just let the text talk to us and interrupt our questions. And so what we we discover is in verse 26, where the phrase comes in, is this. Then God said, let us make man in our image. So that's our phrase. Now it begins to define itself. After our likeness. So the image of God bears a likeness to God. Now what have we learned about God so far? Well, we didn't learn anything about his appearance. But we did learn something about his function about his power, about his ability to overcome chaos and darkness and create life and beauty. This is the only likeness we know so far of God. So to be made in his image is to bear some sort of likeness to what we've seen in the previous verses. And now it's further defined for us in the next line. Let us make them in our image after our likeness. And third, let them have dominion which is a really old word for rulership, kingship. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the livestock, 
and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. What did God miss there? Nothing. Everything in creation's named for us, except for the intergalactic faraway places. That was for Star Wars later on. George Lucas mastered that. But <laughs> joke, joke. Hey, come on. Um, but he's given us everything at our fingertips to have dominion. This is the likeness of God that we see is that he moves into verse two, where we see that it's darkness. There's dark. It's without form. It's void. He moves in. He speaks. Things begin to move around and he makes it exactly as he wants it. As we learn when it says, and it was very good. This is the image of God is to have mastery. It's to have rulership, kingship over the creation. Contrast that with Marduk, who's kicking back in his palace, boasting about the things he's conquered and saying, I'm really glad you were created, Lula. You remember Lula? Made from the mud and blood of Ginku, the chief general. Some of you remember. I'm really glad you're created. Now serve me. Bring me grapes. Bring me wine. Like whatever. He's just commanding the humans to serve the gods. But here we have a different picture. God, yes, is in his temple. Yes, he's conquered what was there. And now he's made everything good. He's brought rest to the land and he's resting with it. But no, he's not telling the humans to feed him, to meet his needs, to give him pleasure. He's actually conferring his own authority over creation to the human. He's, in, in other words, he's bringing the human up to his throne and saying, here you go, Adam. Here you go, Eve. I want to show you how you do this. And every time I see the Lion King, I recall this picture here in Genesis as Mufasa is bringing Simba. I'm sorry if you don't know the movie, but you've probably been living under a rock if you don't. So Mufasa, has be- he brings Simba up to the top of Pride Rock and says, Simba, everything the land touches is our kingdom. Uh, everything the sun touches is our kingdom. And Simba, he does this whole, wow. And this is what God does with the humans as he shows them everything he made and says, have dominion. You are going to be like me. You're going to rule on my behalf. This is crazy. We are co-rulers with God, at least at this point in the story. Does it make sense now why Revelation says over and over that we are going to rule and reign with Christ because this is what Jesus has done, is he's come to fix this whole dominion problem. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So this image, this is what it means to be made. This is what it means to be a human. It's to be made in the image of God. Now, <clears throat> we've talked about dominion. We're going to come back to that. But there's two other things that this means. And it's just real implied First of all, to be made in the image of God obviously means relationship. You can't bear a likeness if there's no relationship. So to be human means to be made to have relationship with God. To find our rest in him. To find our place in him. And we see that in verse 28. God speaks to them, so there's a relationship. But I want you to also look at 2 verse 7. Going ahead to chapter 2 verse 7. It says that the Lord God formed the man from the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So God takes the dust and he forms it 
but there's no life in it yet until God himself breathes into it. God himself has been put into the human frame and that's what makes us a human and not just an animal is that there's this dual relationship. Much as Christ had a dual nature, but not exactly the same, we have a dual part of ourselves where we are, yes, physical human, but we're also spiritual beings that connect with God because this is how we were made. There are two parts to us. Notice also that it says the Lord God formed the man from the dust. You'll notice that it says there in verse seven, Lord is all capital letters. Whenever you see that, this is the first time, by the way, that we see Lord in all capitals appear. It's actually in verse uh, four, but this part of the Bible is the first time we see Lord in all capitals And what you need to know is that this is the personal name of God, Yahweh. That when God comes to Moses at the burning bush and says, Moses says, who are you? And God says, I am who I am, or I will be who I am, or I am who I will be. It's all read. It can translate either way. That's the name Yahweh. I am who I am. And everywhere in the Bible where it says Yahweh in Hebrew, we've put the word Lord in all capitals. Now, I go out of my way to say this because in Genesis 1, Yahweh is not ever mentioned. All you see is God. And the word God is the word Elohim, which simply means king, ruler, judge, authority. So in the beginning, the king, the ruler, the judge, the authority created the heavens and the earth, the Elohim. The Bible sometimes translates human titles into Elohim. Like a psalm says, you are the gods. It's talking about the judges. You are the judges, the Elohim. So what's the point? The point is this. Then chapter one, we see a title, a king, a ruler stepping in and taking authority. But come chapter two, when it emphasizes on how God forms humans from the dust and then breathes a breath of life into them, suddenly it's not just the king, it's his personal name interacting with the personal human being. It's I am Yahweh to you, man, woman, not just the king, but you know my name. There's a relationship here. The image of God is a relationship. Second, the, the image of God, we'll get into this next week more, but I just have to preview it for you. It's a royal priesthood. There's royal authority like we learned, but there's a priesthood. And last week I mentioned that a king would conquer a land and in that land he would then establish a temple to dedicate the land to the God who gave him power to conquer. And then he would establish an image of himself there. So that everybody remembered who is in charge here. And so when God makes the world and it's his, he not only moves in to make it a temple, but he then sets up his image, you, me. And we become the priests who remind creation who's in charge. And then we bring the creation and his loveliness to the creator. We're the middleman that represents both to each other. And so then third, the image of God is a relationship, it's a royal priesthood, and then it's that idea of dominion like we talked about. So I want to change the word dominion to responsibility so that we can see how this works in daily life. To have dominion 
means to have responsibility. You cannot have dominion if you don't have responsibility. If things are just going on and you have no ability to respond to these things, responsibility, then you're not in any control. You have no dominion. And for God to give us the title of dominion over my creation means he's given us a responsibility to control it properly. We're going to see, obviously, in the future, that Adam and Eve break down in this commission. They relinquish their responsibility and the dominion's lost because the creation takes over. But this is what it means to be made in the image of God. We have a relationship. We have a royal priesthood. We have a responsibility to rule over his creation. So here's what it means. Humans here, creation here. Humans on top of creation. Humans always ruling the creation. Now, to do it on God's behalf does not mean God said, do whatever you want with it. I'm never going to ask you about it. No. Responsibility means you got to answer to God too. So when we have dominion, it's not that we're raping the earth of all of its resources and polluting it and doing whatever we want with it because he gave us dominion after all. It's to take care of it on his behalf. Responsibility. We're always on top The creation's always beneath. But the minute that role flips, dominion's lost, and we now enter into what the Bible calls sin. Think about this. Sex is creation. God created it. He had Adam and Eve do it, obviously. He told them, be fruitful, multiply. It was good. And so the humans were to have authority over sex. But then after the fall, this flips. And we see today, I don't think I need to give you too many examples of how sex now rules humans. It determines our behavior. It has the authority. We are responding to it. And this is where you get pornography. This is where you get child molestation. This is where you get adultery. Uh, the fancy biblical word fornication. Right? This is where all of this comes from. Even down to bestiality. When humans engage in sexual sin, the sin has become the dominator of the human. And God asks the humans to rule creation. Another example is drunkenness. Alcoholism. An alcoholic is someone who has given their authority to creation and creation rules over them. When I'm drunk, I've given my authority over to creation and it rules over me. Now think about that for a minute. Take wine, for example. Wine is a fermented, it's, it's the juice of a crushed grape fermented. A grape. God created this. This is good. I want my humans to enjoy this grape. I want them to rule over this grape. And so the grape makes a good snack for them. I found out I could leave it out in the sun and make a raisin. This is really good. I can leave it in a bag in a damp, dark cave for a long time, and I bring it out, and it's really potent. By the way, for much of civilization, wine was necessary to existence because you can always drink water. So that was really good for them at that time. And then suddenly something happens. And while we're showing mastery over creation by turning the grape into many great things, the grape then dominates the human. We see Noah do this early on in chapter 9. We'll see Noah pass out drunk, naked in his tent. The grape owned Noah. 
We're going to see Cain later kill Abel. He's going to have two wives. Sex owns Cain. But what else happens as he kills Abel? And the littler, like so-called littler sins. What is lying? What is selfishness? What is murder? What are these things? All of it could be boiled down to us relinquishing our responsibility to control creation around us. So that when I lie to someone, what I'm actually doing is I'm allowing the instinct of survival to take over in that moment. Because I know the danger of the truth comes out. And I've got to survive at all costs. So I will tell a lie to survive. I will tell a lie to keep lifted up the thing I created. And all of a sudden there, I'm realizing that as I'm lying, I have succumbed to the authority of the world around me and the powers that be and the things I've created and the instinct to survive is all owning me and it's telling me how to live. True dominion, true living in the image of God is when we take responsibility for every single one of our decisions and actions and we no longer blame other people for what we are, what we've done. To show you how badly this unravels later, you already know this happens, but in Genesis 3, God comes to the humans and he says, what have you done? And in 3 verse 12, what does Adam say? The woman you gave to be with me. Wait a minute, Adam. Do you see how quickly he's already lost dominion? He suddenly turned himself into the dominated. I had no control. The woman. The woman dominated him. That's his admission there. Another created being, the creation, dominated him. What does the woman say? The serpent. Another created being. And this is ultimately what happens at the tree. It's not like the forbidden fruit had some magical formula that cursed them, like some magic went into their veins and ah, and like everything started wilting before their eyes. I mean, it might have happened, who knows. But the point of the fruit there was that they gave themselves over to the serpent's authority. The creation ruled the humans. So responsibility, dominion, being made in the image of God is choosing to have a say, an active say in who I am and what I do. And when I fail, I don't say, well, God, if only this person didn't put the bottles there, or if only this woman wasn't there wearing that, or if only, if only, if only the commercials weren't. That's what Adam and Eve did. To be made in the image of God is to say, yes, I blew it. I chose to transgress. I chose to be something less. I chose to not walk in your ways. And I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry for that. God looks at that broken person who admits that he chose what he did and then forgives that person. Because God is not upset at our sin. He's upset at our excuses and our claims. I'm not a sinner. It's their fault that these things happen. What are you saying? I'm not really a bad person. I'm not really a person that has sinned. It's all this fault. And God's just looking for, who did he hang out with when he came to earth? Who did he hang out with? Those who freely admitted they were bad and sinners. He stayed away from those that said, we don't do those things. It's the Romans' fault that anything's going on around here that's bad. He hung out with people who took responsibility for themselves. Now, we could hammer this way too far. And this is not meant to hold up under extreme circumstances. This is not to say that the woman who gets raped needs to take responsibility for what happened to her. 
There are instances where we are victims. Or someone puts a gun to your head and you make a choice that you don't want to make, but the gun was there. But I chose, I could have chosen to die. Be realistic here. You are manipulated for reals. But we so many times act like we were in those situations. And so we play the victim. I can't help it. As a man, I have these impulses. As a woman, I just have to look good. So I buy things and I max out my credit card. I just can't help it. Like we have these things and we play the victim. The old phrase, the devil made me do it. We rephrase that so many different ways. We cannot play the victim if we are to be made in the image of God. Yes, we lost that image, but what did Jesus Christ come to do? He came to reclaim that image and to give it back to humans. And that's what Paul says in Colossians 1.15. He says that he, Christ, was the image of God. And he came and showed us that image. So what do we see Jesus do on the earth? We see exactly what God told Adam to do. Have dominion over the fish of the sea. What did Jesus do? Cast your nets on the other side. And when the disciples who spent all night getting nothing did so, they caught so many fish they couldn't haul it in. Speaking of the sea, Jesus just walked over it. Walked right across that sea. That's dominion, brothers and sisters. Over bread as he multiplies it and the fish to the hungry people, dominion. Over the donkey, the beast of the earth, he rides that unbroken colt into a noisy, boisterous crowd shouting Hosanna. Now, donkeys are very stubborn creatures, especially an unbroken animal. It should never ride into that situation. It would balk, it would run the other way, it'd be spooked. But Jesus, and this is so often overlooked, he rides that creature masterfully into Jerusalem, showing this is dominion right here. I am owning the creation before your eyes. The human body itself, as it's breaking down with disease, even has demonic possession. People can't hear, people can't see. There's things missing, like, like the leper who's missing maybe even a nose often that would happen. They lose parts of their body because they can feel as it got worn away. And Jesus comes and takes mastery of the body. Illness be gone. Uh, leprosy be gone. Oh, by the way, go let your nose and thumb be dipped in blood at the temple like Moses says. Well, wait a minute. You have to have your nose regrown to have that happen or your earlobe. Or... Jesus is taking total mastery over the human body as he's resurrecting even Lazarus from the dead. Over and over we see Jesus, even calming a storm, has dominion over the creation. And so a long story of creation owning and abusing and making humans do inhumane things, dehumanizing themselves and dehumanizing each other. Jesus, the image of God comes and shows us this is what God is going to do. This is what God is about. And so this is what Paul begins to write and the New Testament begins to write. And it uses the fancy word sanctification, which is simply the human learning to re-rule over creation. Sanctification is that process of reclaiming responsibility and dominion. And who gives us that ability? The Holy Spirit's work in us. And what does Paul say happens when the Holy Spirit begins to work in us? We bear the fruits of the Spirit. Fruits, an intentional hearkening back to the Garden of Eden, the way humans were meant to be. 
the whole Bible is telling us that this is what it means to be human, is to be responsible beings who actively admit fault and actively take charge of their situation when they don't like it. Doesn't mean you're always going to completely rule. I want the flowers there. And you kind of aim your finger and it like floats across like you're some wizard. Like that would be cool, but that's not what that means. Um, or nor does it mean that you should try to go walk across Lake Arrowhead and expect yourself not to sink. We are not perfected yet. We are beings learning to re-rule the creation while we're still dominated by the creation. We still see tsunamis. We still see earthquakes. There are still famines. There are still many things we cannot control but we're learning to at least control ourselves. And from that, we're going to see a world healed that is finally controlled by Christ. And then we will be able to do things like Jesus and Adam over the world. That's what Revelation is looking forward to when it says you will rule and reign with Christ. So in the meantime, sanctification, the learning to have dominion over creation is very important. Because who is God going to trust to rule over the new heavens and new earth? Is he going to trust the person that never learned to rule and reign in life? Or is he going to trust the humans that did rule and reign in life? Go home and read Romans 6 and see if this doesn't open up new avenues for you. When Paul says, but sin will no longer have dominion over you. And right before that, the end of Romans 5, he says... You are to reign in life. Or what about 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, um, where Paul says that we are, hold it, that all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, stop the legalistic stuff and just live life, but make sure you never give up your ability to rule. Because the minute something else controls you, that is when you're in sin. So just go and enjoy and live and love, but always stop and wonder, am I in control or is this in control of me? That's the image of God. That's living as a true human. And what would the world look like, brothers and sisters, if we began to rule ourselves, rule the creation around us we've been entrusted with? Would it stop hurting other people? Would we stop hurting other people? Would we see more peace and love? Would we see the gospel and the image of Christ going out more and more? Perhaps, perhaps. At the worship team's coming up, and we're going to go to communion. <laughs> I want you guys to be liberated. Because to be dominated by anything is to be dehumanized. And it might sound strange, but one of Satan's goals is to dehumanize us. If to be human is to be the image of God, what better way than to dehumanize us so that we don't reflect the image of God? And it's not hard to see dehumanization. You can see more animal-like traits in people who are dehumanized than you can see rulership and responsibility and authority. So 
So Father, I ask that you would deliver us from being dominated by anything, even the things that have seemed so harmless, but we're finding ourselves somewhat addicted or controlled by. God, we're asking that you would help us to see a, take a serious look at every part of our life, that we would not be under the control of any, that more of our energy could be given to sharing what you look like to the world. So, Lord, recast us in your image. That's the true way to live free. Free us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, Lord, thank you that you are so welcoming to those who admit sin and mistake. And Lord, those things that we've been blaming on others or hiding from, free us from being victimized, from being controlled by those, and to find freedom in admitting failure and receiving forgiveness and moving on in the power of that forgiveness in your spirit. Oh Lord, please empower these brothers and sisters. Let your spirit fill them and flow through them. May the fruits of the spirit abound abundantly in their homes and their lives and work and family and friends and this mountain itself. Let your image be reflected on us, from us. Let others see you because of how we're choosing to make choices by your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand. May you guys go out this week unafraid, unafraid of admitting your own failures. May you see constantly the forgiveness and grace of God. And may you allow the Holy Spirit where he's nudging and working in you, even if it doesn't always make sense, to allow him to have that control. And if there's anything that has dominion in your life, consider being freed.